Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes, click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crew at UGA podcast. I'm Kyler, a full-time staff member with Crew, and I'm back this week with Alan, who is our Crew at UGA team leader. Alan, how's your week going so far? Uh, you know, it's a week. It's uh, <laughs> Every week is strange and different these days, isn't it? It absolutely so, is. I feel we're like. having a week. Yeah, we're having a week. <laughs> but yeah. it's good. It's yeah. all good. Well, that's great. Uh, so, for those who are listening, as you know, we've talked about this. This podcast for us is maybe just a placeholder for us because we cannot meet in Memorial Hall right now. But as you've been listening, you may be wondering, are Kyler and Alan professional podcast hosts? Of course they're wondering that. (laughs) So Alan, how would you answer that question? Um, Well, from the heart of our downtown Atlanta recording studio, (laughs) um, we are two guys Sitting in the living room with That's this right. fancy mic that we bought off Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, we are super amateur. Oh my gosh. Uh, but it's funny. So in the show notes, if you're listening, we are going to attach a selfie that we took of our setup. Mm-hmm. And so you can see just how professional we are. Yes. Um, so yeah, so we are we are not professionals at all. We are truly figuring this thing out as we go. But having a ton of fun. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. And so... So if you're listening and, and you hear the podcast, if you catch some background noise or the quality fade in, fades in and out, uh, we apologize. Um, but remember, we are not professionals, but we are so glad that you keep tuning in with us each week. Yeah. Uh, so if you remember last week, Alan um, mentioned that we are in a two-week series uh, looking at uh, no. And so like Alan mentioned, the crew at UGA a mission statement is crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. And so for these two weeks, we are focusing in on that no piece of knowing God. And so Alan, today you're going to be continuing with that. Yeah, that's right. And so the idea with doing the no piece is turning our eyes to God. That's what we mean. We value and we prioritize the relationship with God for which we've been made. And this is good, I think, especially right now in our world because there's so many felt needs clamoring for attention, Mm. whether it's COVID or race relations or politics here in an election year. There's just so many voices constantly swirling. And do we want to talk about those things? Yes, for sure. And we plan to in the coming weeks. But we thought, you know what? The best place to start is to turn our eyes toward God our unchanging Father, and anchor ourselves on Him in the midst of all these swirling, changeable things. Let's start here for a couple weeks. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been, we've been trying to turn our eyes to the Lord and think about the unchangeable things. And we've been doing that with this short glance at the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son, as it's often called. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so if you remember last week, I focused on these two sons. And so who they were... Um, and the fact that they were actually both lost, but they were lost in very different ways. Um, if you remember, I talked about how the younger son tried to find himself in a world of self-discovery, and then the elder son tried to find himself in a world of moral conformity. But in fact, they 
they missed out on the heart of the Father, yeah. right? They missed out on knowing the Father deeply. Hmm. Um, and as we look at this parable, it's really an invitation for us, as Jesus told it to, hey, if whether you're a younger son or an elder son or a little bit of both, come know the Father right. and know who He is. And so, Alan, this week, you're going to be talking, talking about, about the Father. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be talking about the Father, which is exciting to me. And so to talk about the Father this week, I'm just going to read part of the story again, not the whole thing. And, and so many people are familiar with it. But I'm going to read part of the story where we look at the response of the Father and see some surprising things. Okay, so this is Luke 15. I'm just going to read verses 17 through 24 again. And they go like this. When he, that would be the younger son, came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And I I just love this part. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Wow. So that's that's a part of the story we're really going to focus on today, which is just the response of the father. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> I feel like this story is very familiar to us. And as such... We tend not to think about it very much. I just feel like we've heard this so much. The whole idea of a prodigal son has become an idiom in English in our culture. Here's the thing, though. This story is actually shocking. And to Jesus' audience, this would have been jaw-dropping. And I think one of the most shocking parts is this sentence. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, Jesus' hearers, I think, would have been aghast at this. And and I think we need to talk about why if we're really going to understand this story. For years, I think I grew up reading and misunderstanding this story. And I think a lot of us in America do this because of our culture. And here's what I mean by that. I'm no anthropology major or anything like that. But I have done a little reading on this and, and haven't lived overseas some myself. One of the things that I've come to see is um, people who study human cultures will talk about how there are three basic major elements in a human culture that shape a worldview. And they talk about three different kinds of culture. One is called a guilt-innocence culture. Another is called an honor-shame culture. And another is called a fear-power culture. Now, just very briefly, you can kind of guess at the definitions of these, but a guilt-innocence culture is a culture that is arranged around this whole idea of individual responsibility according to law, very set standards. Uh, The children are not punished for the sins of their parents. Everyone gets an equal opportunity. There's this idea of you can do right or you can do wrong, and the response of others is based upon this, right? That's pretty well known to us. In the West, in Western Europe and America, we tend to be guilt-innocence cultures. Right. 
Um, there's also an honor-shame culture, and you will find this predominates in East Asia, um, maybe in the Middle East as well, that these are cultures in which someone's standing is based on honor and shame. And one of the books I read about this called uh, Honor and Shame by Roland Mueller, he talks about how the basis of an honor-shame culture is the idea of a group. And that if you are honored, you are included into the group. But if you are shamed, you are excluded. And he also makes the observation of why this was so important. You think about a Middle Eastern desert culture. You don't live individually in the desert. You have to live as a group to survive. And so the idea of being excluded from the group could be a life-threatening proposition. Mm. So you can see why honor and shame would be elevated to such a high status. Now, there's a third type of culture we won't talk about much today. It's called the fear power culture. You see this a lot in Africa, Southeast Asia. It's the idea of that there are powers in the world that must be appeased. Um, And so we live our lives, in a sense, basically trying to appease and protect ourselves from these powers or cooperate with them to get what we want. And so you often see a lot of dictatorships in these cultures because of this. Um, But anyway, we won't go into that. This is not an anthropology yeah. class. It's fascinating stuff. It is fascinating stuff. Yeah. But here's the thing. So people who study this will say that every culture is a mix of these three, but usually there's one that dominates, such as our Western culture, I said, was a guilt-innocence kind of culture. Now, actually, we're shifting a little bit to become a little more of an honor-shame culture. I think hmm. some of that might be because of social media, um, but we see a lot more of this idea of shame and honor going on in American culture. Just over the past 20 years, it's actually quite a recent thing. Um, But because we are predominantly a guilt-innocence culture, I know I at least have always read this story of the two sons from that perspective. Actually, though, this is an honor-shame story. And to understand this story rightly, we have to understand Jesus was in an honor-shame culture And he was speaking to an honor-shame culture, and he told an honor-and-shame story. And that is why I think until we figure this out and know a lot of the cultural context of what's going on in this story, we kind of miss the point. Now, I read a second ago, I said I really love this sentence. That's verse 20. Verse 20 has become one of my favorite verses in the Bible when it says, The Father saw him for a long way off, and he ran to him. Mm. It is so powerful when you understand what that sentence was really describing. Now, I told you, this story would actually have been shocking to Jesus' hearers. And largely, this verse is the reason. And so here's what I want you to picture to help us understand this is an honor-shame story. Okay, Picture the scene. This is not some isolated farm road out in the country as if some farmer in Nebraska had stood on the porch of his farmhouse and a long way away he sees his son coming down the the dirt road. It's not that. People in an iron shame culture would live in a community. In other words, there was a village. The father would have had some sort of house or compound, probably with a wall around it to keep in animals, in a village. He would be part of a community, right? They didn't live that kind of isolated life. And so typically when we read the story, we think the father saw him coming, And we tend to think that means he was so glad to see his son he couldn't help himself. Like one of those scenes when they surprise a family when mom and dad comes home from Afghanistan. Right. And they're on the football field and they turn and they see him and they're like, run down the football field. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm going to be honest with you. I love that, right? I'm a sucker for that. Oh my gosh. I would sit there and every time they show one of those on like a ball game, I just cry and cry. (laughs) 
It's like my wife and daughter would be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, oh, so great. He's coming out from the war. Right. Oh, my gosh. Now, we kind of project that onto this yeah. story. And I'm going to admit, I think there is some of that going on. There is that element of the father's heart. And you know that because he's looking out over the distance. And I sometimes wonder... Do you think if we really dramatize this this short parable that the the father every day would go out and just look down the road and wonder if his son would come back? And hmm. We could, I might be reading too much into the short parable, but I think the idea is there, right. right? Even though his son had disgraced him and had hurt him, and the son basically, like you said last week, wished he was dead. So mm-hmm. give me my inheritance. So it was like a death wish. Here's the father still loving him and wishing him back. Now, there's more to it than that, I think. Kenneth Bailey is a theologian who lived and taught in the Middle East for 40 years. He's an he's a, um, expert in Arabic languages. He tells us that at this time, there is something that is called a kazaza ceremony. I think I'm saying that, pronouncing it right. And basically, what would happen in a situation like this in an honor and shame culture is, anytime a disgraced person would come back to the village like this son, this son would have been stopped on the road and this kazaza ceremony would have been carried out. And what that looks like is he would be surrounded by the villagers. They would yell at him in, dis- in his disgrace. They would take a clay pot and put it in front of him on the road and then they would smash the pot to show that, that there, were, there was a brokenness and broken peaches. Then the villagers would deny him entrance to the village. because they would say, you're not a part of this village. And finally, if they did let him come in, the son would be forced to sit outside his father's gate, however long, till the father deigned to see him. And then maybe he would go to his father and he would beg for a job in another village because he was rejected from this village. This is what a kazaza ceremony is like. This is how an honor-shame culture responds, protecting the honor of the community and rejecting the one who has disgraced them. Wow. By losing all that money with the Gentiles. Can you imagine that? No, and there's so much context there that we don't see in the no. story because we're not from this culture. Exactly. Man, that's so amazing. Now think of the father, okay? Mm. The father sees his son coming. Ugh, it's hard to talk about this without even getting choked up. But right. The father sees his son coming. He knows what's about to happen in the village. Oh. He knows this kazaza ceremony is about to happen. He sees the shame, the son is rightfully about to endure, but because of his love for his son, even though his son has hurt him, and because of who the father is, he acts, right? What does he do? Mm. He runs out. He runs. Wow. And this you, this is what is so shocking. You see, in a village like this, the father's stature, he, from the context of the story, we would assume he is at least a moderately wealthy man. He has servants. Um, he has uh, plenty of workers. He, he seems very well off. He has a great standing in the village. But what that meant was the father's stature meant he always would have walked in a dignified manner. He would have worn robes. He would have had sandals. In a village like this, anyone over 25 would never run to do anything. That's what servants did. This father may not have run anywhere in 40 years. Um, But here in this story, Jesus uses this, this Greek word, dramon, which means the father races. That's the word that's used for like a race, a competition. In other words, the father sees the son coming and he immediately hops up. He races through the village because he's got to get to the son first. 
Now, this would have been scandalous, okay? You can also imagine, here's this father who is supposed to be dignified in all he does, and he's running through the village. And everybody would be like, what is happening? (laughs) Now, also, think of this. He's probably wearing a long robe. Picture him grabbing his robe up like a teenager or a child so he doesn't trip over it as he runs. That shows his bare legs. That would be like he's a manual laborer. That would have been shameful. He would have been shaming himself in the eyes of the village. Basically, by running to his son, he's humiliating himself in front of the entire village, right? This is kind of some of the context that Kenneth Bailey, as he um, talks about the culture of this time and contents on it, says would have been just known by Jesus' hearer. Jesus wouldn't have had to explain all this. The, Mm. The parable, the parallel story, which is what parable means, would have just suggested all this to them. They would have known all of this, but we might not in America, right? Now, I realize that's a lot. Some people might be thinking, okay, you are so making all this up. <laughs> and, and you're coming up with all this stuff. I assure you, I am not. Because I still see this happening today. I don't think I ever understood this story until I heard this story. I think a number of people listening probably know. I lived for a number of years overseas in East Asia in an honor and shame culture. And... There were some workers with us who were nationals of that country. They weren't, they weren't foreigners like me going there who came to be believers. And, you know, as, as often happens in uh, countries that, that don't have a Christian background, sometimes people can be rejected by their families. Well, we had one of our, our workers uh, with us, with crew, go home after she had become a believer And she told this story of what happened when she went back to her family's home for the big holiday. She went to her house and her parents were furious at her over her faith in Christ. And they uh, were this far away, just a smidgen away from just totally disowning her. She went back into the apartment. Her mother was furious with her and she talked about going in and her mother yelling at her and scolding her and berating her and all of this. And finally, her mother said, well, you think I'm mad. You still have to talk to your father. Hmm. And so she went to go find her father. And here's what happened. Her father was seated in his bedroom with the door closed. And when she opened the door and went in, her father was sitting in a chair with his back to the door looking at the wall. Father was just facing the wall with his back to the door and his arms folded, completely rejecting her. Well, she went in, she kind of stammered a little bit about, Dad, I'm here, and, and he would not speak to her. He would not acknowledge her presence. He would not recognize her. Finally, she just stammered around, realized he wasn't going to say anything, and basically had to leave and just close the door with her father still with his back to her, staring at the wall. This is how an honor-shame culture works. Now, this, that's a modern-day story. Mm-hmm. Take that story that I just told you and contrast that with how the father in the parable responds. Wow. Here in the parable, the father runs, and instead of shaming, he gets to his son, and before this shame ceremony can be carried out in the village, he stops him. And instead of shaming the son, right there in amongst the villager, he tells his servants, 
go fetch the best robe and a ring. He doesn't say, hey, son, I'm so glad you're back. Let's go back to the house and get you cleaned up. Mm -mm. He will not let the son proceed through the village till the robe is on his shoulder and the ring is on his hand and the sandals are on his feet. And here's the point we cannot miss, right? The father atones for the son by taking his shame. You see, my Muslim friends would say there's no atonement in this story. The son comes back, declares his repentance. He's accepted on those terms. In other words, he kind of comes back. He secures his own reception by this kind of manipulation of, hey, I'm going to come back and pledge myself as a servant. Basically, I'm going to redeem myself. That's not what this story is showing us. There is clearly atonement in this story. There is clearly a sacrifice of love on the father's part. The father bears the shame in the village instead of the son, puts his robe and his ring on him, puts his honor on him, walks the son through the village back to the house. The father is the one who took the shame in the village. There is an atonement, but it's not a guilt-innocence atonement. Hmm. It's an honor-shame atonement, right? Now, we talked about this story being a story that teaches us about God and training our eyes on God because this is the God we can know. God wants us to know what kind of God he is, right? So what does this teach us about God? It is showing us the God of the universe who is holy and transcendent not only allows us to come to him, but he even runs to us when we're sinful. He even runs to us when we should have no claim on him, right? This is how eager God is to be joined to his people. This is how much he loves us. This is a gospel story, in other words. You see it. See, the coming down and the going out to the sun, it's a parable of the incarnation. It's really really a picture of what Jesus does on the cross as he reclaims us. Wow. That's so amazing. It's so amazing seeing that. I mean, we saw the Father. He didn't wait for his son to find his way to him and beg for forgiveness. Um, But the father runs out to the son to meet him where he's at. And we also saw that in the elder son, Mm -hmm. right? Like the father, the elder son refuses to go in the house and the father comes out to the elder son as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I haven't really focused on that just for time's sake because I didn't want the podcast to be so long. But the idea is really the same. When he goes out later in the story to the elder son, he's also shaming himself there as well because no person of stature would go out and approach his son that way, would leave the banquet that's going on in the house. He would have servants to do that. And so in a sense, he also takes the shame on himself to try to reconcile the older son too. And isn't it interesting in the story, there's no ending. It leaves that part of the story open. What will the older son do? You talked about that a little last week. But this idea, the father presents himself to be known. The younger son rejected that relationship, but he is received back to be known by the father. The older son as well is invited to know the father. But like you said, in his moral conformity and just trying to do all the right things, he doesn't really know the father. He doesn't really experience relationship with the father. He's just trying to do stuff to be justified. But we don't get the end of his story. Right. So, Alan, as we experience this father in this story and see how the father responds to both of these sons, how should we respond now? Like, what is the application for us as listeners? How are we to respond now to this truth about yeah. the father? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just a really great 
question because as you hear all that, you begin thinking about your own relationship with God, which is the point. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I have been in campus ministry a long time, and I think one of the things I constantly run into over the years as I meet with students is how difficult it is for most to grasp that God really does feel this way about them. And I don't, I don't know why that is. Maybe part of it is that so many of us come from homes with physically or an emotionally absent father. Um, some of it may be a lot of us come from performance families in which we try to, we would say we're loved, but we're really just under constant pressure to measure up and do all the right things. But see here, we see this picture of God which tells us even though we are the worst of sinners who have done the most shameful things, God's crazy about us and mm-hmm. delighted in us and chooses to save us and to resurrect us at great cost to himself. And he's not so delighted in us because we're so great, but because of who he is, mm-hmm. because that's his character, because he just loves us that much, even though we don't deserve it. That's really how he feels about us. Yeah. I mean, you can't read this story and not see that. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, who would not want to follow a God like that? Who would not want to give your entire life to a God like that, who loves you that much and cares about you that much? So I just think it's a call to abandonment and surrender and joy in that relationship with God, right? Right. A second thing I think we see that is very moving is this idea of taking shame. Like I said, we are not as much a shame culture as a guilt culture in America, but that, that is changing, I think. We said shame was largely based on being rejected, being forced outside the group. There's this acceptable group, and all the others are mocked, looked down on, reviled, shunned, shut out. So they have a lesser status. Honestly, I think a lot of people have experienced that in one way or another. And I hate to say it, I bet a number of people have experienced that from Christians, which is is unfortunate. But I think... That's the lesson from the older son that you talked about last week um, has part to do with that. But again, when it comes to shame, what is God like? God is not a shame giver. He's a shame taker. I just think that's so important. He's a shame coverer. He takes that on himself. He says, you are welcome here. You are respected here. Regardless of what you've done, you are family here. That's how God treats us. And I think to myself... You know, I read stories about former Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or others. Maybe I've met some of our friends in South Asia when we've been over there on our short-term trips. They're willing to come to Christ even though their families reject them and basically put them outside of the group in shame. Why? Why would they be willing to undergo that? And I really think it's because they see the truth of God, but also they realize they're welcomed into God's family into the royal family of the king, as it were. And this is the real family for which we are created. And so that's an eternal belonging, not a temporal earthly one. And they see the greater value in having God take that shame away and bring them into his family. Now, I have a hard time really grasping that, but but I think my friends in Asia that I know over there, they see it so much more clearly. God is a compassionate God. He takes on himself the shame that we deserve. And I just, I just say again, how would you not want to follow that God, right? A God who loves you that much. Who would not want to be free from the tyranny of having to be approved all the time, of having to measure up all the time, of having to do all the right things and please everybody all the time? Hmm. This is the God we know. 
This is the God that we want to put our eyes on. We can be secure that he loves us that much, even in these crazy, uncertain times that we live in right now. That's, that's just who our God is and how he feels about us. Wow, that's amazing. That is, that's such an amazing uh, truth that, that God is like this. Like, we're not making this up. Yeah. You're not making this up. Like, yeah. Jesus told this parable to communicate this to mm-hmm. his listeners. Yeah. And as we, 2,000 years later, hear this story, Jesus wants us to know this about his Father. Right. Which is an amazing thing. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I think there's another aspect to this story that, that I love that, you know, we see Jesus is inviting us to know his Father. But then I also think through this story, that invitation extends even more. I think he's also inviting us to become like this father. You know, like I said last week, I know what it's like to be the younger son. I see myself in this story through the younger son, and I know what it's like to be the elder son. But now, as Jesus invites me to know the father, and as I know the father, and and as my heart is changed by knowing the Father, I think Jesus is inviting me and inviting us to become like this Father. People who extend grace and who offer forgiveness and show love and, and welcome people in, just like this Father did for us. Right. Man. Yeah. There's so many layers to this story. There are so many layers. We could sit here and talk about applications. So many things Jesus was teaching as he tries to teach us that we are never so far gone that we are hopeless in his eyes, nor are we ever so righteous mm. that we are not needy of his grace. I mean, both directions this story goes. Absolutely. I mean, we could we could talk all about that for a long time, but we're only going to do two podcasts right. on this, so we're just going to leave it right there with our eyes fixed on the Lord. And Yeah. And you guys can keep reading that story in Luke and think about it if you want to. Absolutely. But this is our Father. Mm-hmm. This is the Father Jesus invites us That's to That's right. Isn't that amazing? Which is amazing. Yeah. Yes. So, so thanks, Alan. Thanks for, thanks for walking us through all the, the context and just the reality of this honor-shame culture and how it really forms out this story for us. So if you're listening to this story and, and if you've listened to the, the podcast uh, this week and last week, and maybe God's doing something in your heart. You know, usually at, at a weekly meeting, we can get to know you. We can maybe talk to you more about this. But but if God's saying something specific to you and you want to talk with somebody about it, Alan and I would love to do that. And our other crew staff team, of people on our crew staff team, and, and also our student leaders, we would love to talk with you more about what God may be saying to you and what God may be leading you um, to, to do. And we would love to interact with you um, through that. And so... If, if this is you, uh, if you're listening to this and, and you really want to talk with someone, we have a link in the show notes of a survey you can fill out. And if you fill out that survey, we will get in touch with you as soon as we can yeah. to have that conversation with you. Yeah, so we'd love to meet as many people as we can. Or if you're new, especially if you're a UGA student and you're new, uh, we would love to have contact with you. And someone will reach out to you, and whether it's a socially distanced cup of coffee or um, a Zoom call or something like that. We just love to love to get to know you and love to hear from you. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for listening, and thanks, Alan, for being on the podcast. All right.